0: I want to take some time focusing this morning on what the picture of marriage is intended to convey. God tells us in his word that marriage uh, is a work of grace. It's an ongoing, unfolding work of grace between two people. It's an opportunity to demonstrate and to illustrate the love of God that's been poured out to us towards one another. Now, the longer you get married, uh, you realize life holds challenges, doesn't it? Life gets busy and full. Kids are not quite as easy as you thought they might be. Uh, The demands financially and transitions from work and issues with extended family. But what you find is that God has brought into your life somebody to journey with you to learn and grow together through the highs and the lows, And you begin to realize that all those events, some trials, some successes, some highs, some lows, are all occasions to grow in your understanding of the love of Christ and how to demonstrate it towards one another. Now, those of us who aren't married today, this still has great merit for you because at the core, the way we live in relationship with each other still needs to manifest these same principles of demonstrating the love of Christ towards one another. So uh, I hope that you'll be encouraged. For those of you who are younger and might be married someday, hopefully you can file away this perspective that will benefit you if the Lord leads you in that direction. When we think about this idea of a marriage, illustrating uh, the love of Christ and great spiritual truths, I was blessed to have a dad who was a pastor. And when my wife and I got married, he, he and my father-in-law, who was also a pastor, shared the service. And when my dad uh, stood before us and before we said our vows, began to explain to us the importance of marriage from God's perspective and God's word. One of the things that he did that Lisa and I didn't know, but it's something we've treasured uh, all of uh, our married life, was a perspective he gave us in saying that the marriage ceremony itself illustrates great spiritual truths. And many of you, uh, due to... Uh, probably just familiarity, probably are familiar with the kinds of things that occur in a Christian uh, wedding ceremony, but don't know the significance or meaning behind them. And I want to share those with you by way of introduction this morning. These are the things that my dad shared with Lisa and I on that day that we got married. He said, these are the things that are part of the ceremony that point to great spiritual truths and give a picture for what God intends for his people He says, when the groom enters the ceremony first, as he often does and stands at the head of the aisle, it's signifying that he is the covenant initiator. He's taking leadership in the relationship. So he enters first and takes the position of leadership. This is important because the one who initiates the covenant assumes the greater responsibility for seeing it fulfilled. The husband as head of the wife maintains this responsibility as leader in their relationship. He then pointed to the processional with groomsmen and bridesmaids, and he says the tradition of having these attendants come down the aisle before the bride, what we refer to as the processional, points to Hebrews chapter 11 that refers to the saints who go on before us and stand as witnesses to our Christian lives. He said the moment then that the doors open and the father begins to walk his daughter down the aisle, is a picture of a father bringing his daughter to meet the bridegroom. And in Scripture, the father is the one who's responsible for the purity of the daughter before marriage. Paul refers to this uh, when he speaks of the church and our relationship to Christ as his bride in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, saying that we are to be presented to him uh, blameless and pure. He says, then, the bride coming down uh, the aisle on a white runner, We used a white runner in our wedding ceremony. It's not as customary today, but historically, the symbolism of that white runner is this, that she is being presented pure to the bridegroom, unblemished. And it reminds us that when making a covenant before God, we are standing on holy ground. And that's why you don't walk down the middle of the aisle when you go to a wedding. It's protected. It's kept pure and clean for the entrance of the bride. It's holy ground because a covenant is about to be made. He then uh, mentioned this. He says, as she comes in and the congregation rises to their feet, as the bride enters, it symbolizes the rising of the church to meet the bridegroom in the air. It's a picture of Christ's future hope and the promised return of Christ, and their rising to meet him. That's something that is our hope, isn't it? That we anticipate that. And that's why you stand at a wedding uh, when the bride comes in and is presented to the bridegroom. You on to say, after the vows are publicly made, the groom lifts the veil to kiss his wife. And the lifting of the veil is representative of what occurs when a non-believer receives Jesus Christ as their savior. The veil between the individual and Christ is removed, as is referred to in 2 Corinthians 3, 14. There's no separation between us and Christ. And that's that picture of removing the veil. And then at the close of the ceremony, when the time comes to extend an invitation to the reception, we recognize it's a reference to Christ's teaching. Christ used the invitation to the wedding feast as an illustration of inviting people to partake of salvation. The wedding feast was free to the invited guest, just as salvation is free to all who will receive it. And Christ often uses the wedding ceremony in his parables and illustrations regarding the coming kingdom of God. In Matthew 8, 11, Christ spoke about the scope of his kingdom to be extended among all the nations. And he said, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And the feast itself uh, is related to the act of making a covenant. Food was always a part of the covenant celebration in scripture. One of the root meanings of the word covenant is to feed. And following a marriage, a feast was customary to further symbolize the unity of the couple. And so even in the Christian wedding ceremony, there are these wonderful pictures that are given to those who are attending of these wonderful spiritual truths. And I hope that as you attend weddings, either this month or in the days to come, and you see these things being illustrated, it'll be an encouragement to you of what God has promised to us. We are His bride his church, in relationship to him as the bridegroom. This is the greater spiritual truth, and it frames an understanding of marriage for us. And therefore, what occurs in marriage should continue to point to this greater relationship between us and Christ. And husbands and wives have an opportunity to put on display some very essential and critical truths so that those who observe their marriage can see these truths lived out. Not only is Christian marriage the premier picture of God's covenant love relationship with believers, it is one of his greatest expressions of grace to man. The relationship between a man and a wife is one of partnership, of intimacy, of friendship. Think of the great love stories of Scripture, Isaac and Rebecca, or Jacob and Rachel, or Boaz and Ruth. These are wonderful pictures of what God intends for a man and wife to experience in the relationship of marriage. After God had created Eve, Adam looked upon her and said, this is now at last, what? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. It's a reference to that intimacy, even in the design of God in creating the woman coming from man. Here, Adam is both acknowledging that God has done a marvelous work of creation and that God has done it on his behalf. It's a recognition of God's grace and loving provision to him. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 7, that husbands are to show our wives honor as fellow heirs of the grace of life. Peter summarizes the marriage relationship as a grace-filled relationship a relationship that's based on the grace of the work of Christ on our behalf and then enables us through the power of his spirit and the guidance of his word to live in grace, to live in love in a way that puts him on display. John Piper said this uh, with regard to grace-filled relationships. He said, no man is complete unless he is conducting grace between God and another person. Only a person can be a fellow heir of the grace of life. Only a person can receive and appreciate and enjoy grace. What man needs is another person with whom he can share the love of God. And so grace is something that gets to be displayed in the context of the marriage relationship. And I would say in Piper's intent wasn't focused just on marriage. But in close, intimate, personal relationships that we have with other believers. We have the opportunity to demonstrate the grace of God. Well, in a parallel passage to Peter's writing, we find a very familiar text, and I'm going to take us there this morning. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. So turn there with me. I want to read the text and then begin to draw several observations that I trust will be an encouragement to you. Ephesians 5 Beginning in verse 22, Paul writes, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. He addresses husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. He qualifies this. He says, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. We're going to see in this text Uh, two specific ways that Christ is displayed in a grace-filled marriage. But before we do, I want you to appreciate the context of the book of Ephesians for just a moment. The book of Ephesians repeatedly frames our relationship with Christ's work on our behalf and our relationships with one another using the term grace to describe it. What is grace, by the way? That's right, unmerited favor. It's that which we don't deserve. There's a humility that has to accompany the practice of grace. We have to recognize in our relationships that we're unworthy. We are undeserving. It causes us to cease certain expectations and placing certain demands that because of our value and our position and who we are, that someone's to treat us in a certain way. But instead... It calls us, just as we've received the grace of Christ, totally undeserved, to then offer that in relationship to one another. Yes, in marriage, but also to fellow believers. And so Paul speaks of grace often. He begins the book uh, in saying in verse 2 of chapter 1, grace to you and p- peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to illustrate throughout chapter one, the greatest truths of what's been accomplished on our behalf because of his commitment to showing grace. He predestined us. He chose us from eternity past. He regenerated us. He granted to us faith to believe and to trust him. He's forgiving us. He's sanctifying us. And one day he will glorify us. And Paul describes this as the riches of God's mercy and grace. And so chapter one is an unfolding of the love of Christ as has been displayed to us. He goes on then in chapter two and talks about us being in in verse one, uh, being transitioned from death into life. He says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked according to this course of this world And then he begins to unfold for us, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he what? He made us alive together with Christ. See the relationship? It's a grace-based relationship with Christ that we enjoy. And he goes on to say, by grace you have been saved. And we've been raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not as a result of work so that no one may boast. And then he says this in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Okay, We're being designed, strengthened, equipped and prepared by God. He uses the word here, created in Christ Jesus for what? for good works. What are those good works? It's to live in a manner that behaves towards others in the way that Christ behaved towards us. he says he's prepared these great works, these good works for us to demonstrate beforehand so that we will walk in him. This is God's sovereign will for our lives. And he begins to describe in the next few verses about how We were enmity with us, but he freed us and he's brought him to himself and he's building up uh, a temple unto himself and we're building ourselves on him as the chief cornerstone. And then Paul comes to chapter three and he begins to say, I was a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. We know that he was appointed to bring the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. He says, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of what? God's grace, which was given to me for you that by revelation was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. And it begins to explain how he was entrusted to bring this wonderful message to the Gentiles. And he makes a comment as uh, towards the end of the chapter, verse eight and following, it's saying, you know, the Gentiles were at odds with the Jews, weren't they? And we see that it took them a while uh, to work out that conflict until they could see that because of their relationship with Christ, they were all equal. They were all one. They're all members of the body of Christ, the church, and therefore are the bride of Christ. And he's saying because of the grace of God, now we can enjoy relationship where there was conflict and division, where there's pride and there's separation. And so grace becomes the means of framing even the human relationships between Jews and Gentiles as now one. In Christ. That's a remarkable work. It's a historic work if you understand the fate of Gentiles and their opposition to the Jews. Well, Paul's not done. And then he just can't help himself. Verse 14, he begins to pray this prayer. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Why? so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend what, with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And here it is. What's, he, what's the essence of his prayer? That the Ephesians would know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. And in so growing in their understanding of the amazing love of Christ and the way that his grace has been demonstrated towards them that they would actually begin to be filled up or mature into the fullness of God, meaning that they will be equipped then to demonstrate the love of Christ as God would towards others. This is Paul's longing of his heart. It's not just to be recipients of God's grace, but then to begin to be filled up to live like Christ in displaying his love. He goes on to talk about walking worthy in chapter 4. And then he makes this point uh, later in verses 17 and following of just talking about how we formerly walked as unbelievers and as Gentiles, and we were futile in our thinking, and we chased after every wicked thing. And then he says in verse 22, but we've laid aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and this, that you're being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you're putting on the new self, and listen which is in the likeness of God. It's an amazing truth that we are being shaped to live our lives in a way that demonstrates the character and love and grace of God. And then he just begins to be practical. He says, "Now stop lying to each other and speak truth. Stop being angry with each other. Stop stealing from one another. See how it transitions into the relational context? If you're going to love somebody in the way that God loves them, then you're not going to violate them in these ways. You're not going to abuse them. You're not going to extort them. You're not going to deceive them. You're not going to violate them. You're going to do just the opposite. You're going to move towards them in a way that is characterized, as he goes on to say, uh, at the end of chapter 4, by being kind, being tender-hearted, verse 32, forgiving each other. And notice again, we read the words, just as just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Unless we lose the import of what Paul is saying here, he makes it very clear in chapter five, verse one, he says, therefore, because of all of this that I explained to you, that God's done on our behalf. He says, now you be imitators of God. You be imitators of God and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us in offering And a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. And then again, he begins to unpack that very practically until he comes to our text. You needed to hear all that because a lot of times we jump into this text and we start thinking in terms of, of, okay, wives, here's your duty to submit to your husbands. And we explain it all technically and we give you all the, the understanding of what that means. And I'll do some of that in a moment. And then we approach the husbands and we say, you need to do this. But a lot of times we come to this text with the simple expectation that this is just duty. Impressed upon us that somehow we've got to figure out how to live in the context of a marriage relationship uh, in a way that is just characterized by obedience. And my friends, I want you to understand it's something radically different than that. There are times obedience needs to be the motivation, but that's not Paul's motivation in our text. His motivation is live in light of the love and grace of Christ demonstrated to you. And when you wake up every morning and you see your spouse lying next to you, you need to see them as Christ sees them. Now that begins begins to expose a lot of things in our hearts, doesn't it? Because we still contend with the flesh a lot of selfishness. And so we need to understand, therefore, what our text is saying to us and how the marriage relationship now can put on display the grace of God. And we'll see this in two specific ways. First of all, we see that Christian wives display how a believer's submission is to be demonstrated towards Christ's lordship. I'll say that again. Christian wives display how a believer's submission is to be demonstrated towards Christ's lordship. This is a high calling, wives. This is a noble calling. God has entrusted to you to give not just your husband, not only your kids, but those who know you and even those who are unbelievers to see how a believer is going to honor the lordship of Christ. You get to illustrate that in your daily choices with your husband. It's not just about duty, it's about offering this picture of obedience and love and and gratitude to Christ. So, what does Paul say here? Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. See the comparison there? It's a very clear comparison. The human marriage relationship is specifically designed to illustrate the spiritual relationship between Christ and believers. And just as the the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands. Do you understand that? That's the primary emphasis of Paul here. He says, wives, this is a high calling for you. And he knows it's no easy calling because your husbands aren't perfect like Christ. It's going to require great faith. (laughs) It's going to require uh, a a real commitment to rely on being spirit-filled, which he addresses in chapter six. To follow a human man in a fashion that you follow Christ. But if you do it, you'll be able to illustrate to those who are watching what our mutual responsibility is to make Christ Lord in our own hearts. Ladies, I wish we made it easier for you. My days are filled with more regrets that I don't provide for my wife. A better example, uh, make it easier for her uh, to submit to me. She works hard at it, and I'm blessed by that. But as imperfect as our relationship, it still provides the opportunity to put on display what God intends for us in our attitude and our submission to him. When we talk about the word submit or subject, uh, it simply means this, to arrange yourself under, to subordinate yourself under someone else's authority. And I think it's important to note here, sometimes we um, think in terms of submission as uh, inferiority, and that's not the case at all. Actually, an understanding of the term, it's a military term, about very capable troops who have placed themselves under the authority of a military leader. This is not weakness. This is not inferiority. These are well-trained troops. They're equipped. They have tools and armor, and they have everything they need to go to battle, and they're placing themselves under a particular human leader. We need to understand that submission is strength placed under authority. It is not a condition of inadequacy, but it's a recognition of the unique gifts and abilities and capacities a wife has been given by God and then are entrusted to her husband. It's important to make the distinction that this is not weakness of intellect or ability or strength. It's just the opposite. For us as men who spend most of our time in the workplace, you know, when we have an opportunity to hire somebody to be part of, of our, our team in our division or whoever we give oversight to, we say all the time, it's wisest to hire up, don't we? Hire somebody who's more experienced and, and more competent and maybe even smarter than you are. And a person who does that, a leader who does that, is a leader who's also characterized by humility. But there are other times that leaders often just want to surround themselves with yes men, which provide for them a false sense of being in control and being competent and and being superior. And unfortunately, I think a lot of men approach their marriage relationships expecting that submission means that their wife just says yes to them under every occasion and have created a condition in their home where all they want to hear is yes so that they feel superior. Christian wives will say yes to their husbands, but God intends something far greater for us than just that kind of relationship. He's entrusted men to you, a woman who's been uniquely designed by him, who's been entrusted with spiritual gifts, who has an education, has her own life experience, and brings to your relationship everything that God wanted you to experience to compliment you, just as Adam was complimented by Eve. Now, those differences sometimes can create attention, okay, because you have differences of perspectives. But if you understand the opportunity to value your wife's perspective and to seek her input and to let her speak into your decision-making, together you're stronger for that, just as we would be in the workplace by hiring up and surrounding ourselves with people who are experienced and strong and, and effective in what they do. But this is the assignment given to the wife to place herself under the authority of the husband just as believers are under the headship of Christ. Notice at the end of our text, verse 33, Paul repeats this. He says, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. It's a different word here. The Greek word is phobotai, and it means to have reverence for. And we often say that respect is something that needs to be earned. A wife can offer it, and she can honor her husband. But gentlemen, we sure make it easier on our wives if we also earn their respect. And we live in such a fashion that it's not difficult, but it's easy for them to honor us. Christ addresses this tendency of men to approach their role of authority in a non-Christlike manner in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 34. You don't have to turn there, but I just want to reference it because it helps us understand this principle of authority and how we need to view it. This is the occasion where James and John are seeking a position of privilege in the kingdom with Christ. And Christ responds to them in saying, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Christ is speaking to his disciples who are Jewish, and at this point, the Jewish people had a great hostility towards the Gentiles. The reason for that throughout their history, because of their disobedience and their submission to idolatry, God allowed them to be brought under Gentile rule. You can go back, think about the Babylonians or the Assyrians. Here's the Romans who rule over them. And these Gentile rulers often use their position of authority to exploit the people under their rule, taking advantage of them. And so the response of the Jews was was to hate the Gentile rulers. And Christ knows us. And he says, listen, in my kingdom, it's not like worldly rulers and authority who use their position to exploit things from those who depend upon them, who follow them, who are under their rule. He says, it's just the opposite. He says, don't lord over them. Instead, be a servant. Humble yourself. Take on the role of of bowing the knee and washing the foot. This is a posture of humility, and Christ is our ultimate example in this. And so this is Christ's emphasis for us as husbands, If you go back all the way to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it says, man, part of uh, his assignment in creation was to exercise dominion or to subdue the earth. He was designed to rule over the earth, but he was designed to do that in a benevolent way, a way that was consistent with the character of God. But as a result of the fall, man became a self-lover, and therefore he exploits positions of authority to use them for his own benefit. But the work of sanctification allows a man to repent of that and to begin to demonstrate the love, the service, and the grace of Christ in our own home. My wife has always told me that when I lead faithfully, it prevents her from being tempted to not submit. Say it another way, men, when we don't lovingly lead our wives, we create a dilemma for them. If we don't, invite their counsel, and we're trying to make a decision about our kids, and they've been with our kids all day throughout the week, and they know their tendencies by way of their character, their sin patterns, and things like that. And we come home, and we just kind of make snap decisions and judgments without the benefit of of inviting their counsel. We can't be as effective in our position as a father in that regard. And what if our wife has really important information, and we don't ask her and if it's such that it even violates a biblical priority in our home and what we're asking our kids to do or knowing their heart in an issue of sin, now she, she's caught between us and the word of God. We can easily put our wives in this position of a dilemma where they're they're tempted to not submit because they have information that would make us more effective and make a wiser choice in our own home. And so we have to solicit their input, and to do that in a a patient and an understanding way. I'm very prone to this, my wife will tell you. I walk in the door, I have five kids, I love them with my whole heart. And we have five teenagers, they're sitting over there, very proud of them. But there's a lot of shepherding opportunities, a lot of issues that we got to work through in our home every day. And sometimes if I come home and I'm tired and weary, I just want to make a quick decision to resolve whatever is the conflict or the tension without really understanding how my wife has been instructing them and then how I need to come alongside and to affirm those biblical principles uh, in their life. And so uh, I'm preaching to myself this morning, uh, not just to you, but it's just one example. There are many others of how we can be more effective in this regard. But for the sake of time, let me continue on and let's talk about the second observation here of how a Christian marriage gives a picture of a relationship with Christ. And point number two is this, Christian husbands display how Christ's lordship is demonstrated towards a believer. Husbands, this is our high calling. It's not just to provide for our wife and kids. It's not just to work hard. It's not just to do all the practical things that we need to do. Our ultimate assignment by God is in our marriage relationship to demonstrate how a believer is to display, particularly a husband, is to display Christ's lordship, how he leads us. And four times in these verses, husbands are commended to love their wives. But it's not according to our own standards or preferences. It's according to the very way that Christ himself, our head, loves us. This is our standard. And here the man is given the great privilege of demonstrating to his wife, his kids, and those outside his home the amazing way that Christ loves his bride. Now, there are many ways that Christ showed his love for us, didn't he? He died for us, the ultimate <laughs> sacrifice, laid down his life for us. He, uh, through his work on the cross, provided a means for us to be forgiven and to be reconciled to God. John 15 tells us that He desires for us to abide in him and he in us. And so there's an intimacy of relationship. And and we know that he sits at the right hand of the father and he intercedes for us. There's so many active demonstrations of the love of Christ. But this text emphasizes two specific ways that we are to love like Christ. We see this in verse 29. It says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but what? He nourishes it and cherishes it, and there's our phrase again, just as Christ also does the church. So what Paul's saying is Christ nourishes and cherishes his bride. Men, we need to nourish and cherish our brides. And the word nourish in the Greek is ektrophe and it means to nourish up to the point of maturity or to feed or to nurture. And this means that we are to be purposed to make our relationships built on biblical truths and precepts not your opinion. Every discussion that you have doesn't need to be informed by your opinion. It needs to be informed by the mind of Christ. Every decision that you make should take into account the principles that we find in God's word. Our opinions don't matter. Christ's do. We have to ask ourselves, is our marriage one that helps our wives to live lives in accord with God's revealed will for believers? Or do we call her to live in a manner that is in conflict with biblical priorities and values, tearing her down and undermining her ability to fulfill a life of obedience to Christ? And this is Paul's point. If you look at the context, if you go back to verse 26 and verse 27, what does he say there? What's our responsibility? That we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church who gave his life to sanctify her Cleansing her by the washing of water with the word. that They might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So also ought, so husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. See what Paul's saying here is Christ's ultimate commitment for you and I as believers is that we grow in holiness, So are you building your home? Are you building your marriage? Or are you framing the decisions you make based on the clear principles of God's words that guides us in obedience and holiness? The second word there is the word cherish. The Greek word is thalpe, and it means to warm or foster. Now listen, guys, we're not good at this. Tender care. Foster tender care. And this is an active form of making our wives feel safe, that we're approachable, that we desire to know them and be with them, that they are wanted and cared for. This means that we must leave behind our primary loyalties to fathers and mothers and be fully committed to building a life together with our wives. And that's why in verse 28, I'm sorry, verse 31, he describes and quotes from the Old Testament this command to leave our fathers and mothers And to be joined with our wives, becoming one flesh. This is a cherishing relationship. So guys, this is how we love our brides as Christ loves his church. It's committed to their sanctification, their holiness. We nourish them and we create an environment of tender care and love, of welcome, of safety and acceptance. And so doing, they're able to flourish and mature to become the women that God wants them. To become. Well, there's a lot I could say with regard to how we can nourish and cherish, but let me just leave you with this, guys. Ask yourself this question Do you initiate towards your wife? Do you pursue? Or is she the one that always has to break into your thoughts, always break into your time where she doesn't feel welcomed or invited? Find those occasions that you extend an invitation to know you and to share life with you. Now, as we just draw this to a close this morning, I'm reminded of the occasions I've had to conduct a, a marriage between a couple, and it's an enormous privilege. And as we come together, uh, there's that moment in the ceremony where they make their covenant commitment. They express their vows. Sometimes a couple writes their own vows, but here are the vows that I encourage a couple Uh, to make to one another. And so when I speak to a woman, I said, will you have this man to be your husband, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love him, comfort him, honor him and keep him, in sickness and in health, and forsaking others, be faithful to him as long as you both shall live? And then she's given that great opportunity to respond and makes the covenant with the words, I will. And then I turn to the husband, and we repeat the same phrase, and then he makes that covenant commitment. If you're married here today, I don't know what vows you made to each other, but as a Christian couple, you might just want to take some time this afternoon and think back and try to remember and remind yourself and try to recover this wonderful and beautiful picture, not just of the ceremony, but what the actual relationship between a husband and wives is intended to display. You may be in a place where you're struggling in your marriage. Life's hard. We're two imperfect people. But what I want to say to you is don't lose hope. This is, God's, this is God's intention for us. And he promises that if we pursue him, pursue his word, we may need to get counsel and help and encouragement. But together, we can begin to taste and realize this wonderful promise that he makes for a Christian couple And may we be faithful, not only today, but in the years to come, to fulfill those vows that we made to one another. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for our time in the Word this morning. I'm sure there's not a one of us here who's married who feels that we have achieved uh, this high standard of living towards our spouse in a way that demonstrates these great spiritual truths but we claim your promise that you're going to complete the work that you began, that you're going to perfect us, that you've given us your word, your spirit, your people to help us in this endeavor. And I pray for those of us who are married, that this would be a day that we renew our vows in our own heart and to our spouse and before you and where we need to grow and where we need to, to make some changes in our lives that you would aid us to do that. And I pray that you would help us, to be characterized by true grace in our homes. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.